So people of the fine print is celebrating this idea that church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. This has always been true of the church and is true of the church tonight. It's true of this church. Church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. So what that means is Passion City isn't going to succeed based on who we can get on this stage. Passion City is going to succeed based on the participation of every single person in our house in the way that God has created you and gifted you and designed you to contribute to the process of the gospel expanding in the lives of people all around you. And that's what we're seeing in Acts and in the epistles as we're looking at the very early days of the church of Jesus. And there are two things that I've said uh, all day today about this expansion of the church that I just want to drop in tonight and then we'll jump into the person of the fine print that I want to introduce you to if you don't already know them tonight. The two big ideas are these. The gospel strategy is a city strategy. Now why would I even say that? Because when we look at the account in Acts, we look at the letter to Ephesians and Corinthians and Colossians and Thessalonians. These were important cities in the time of the expansion of the early church of Jesus. Why? Because God knew then, the same as is true now, that when something explodes in a city, it explodes everywhere. Now that doesn't mean God doesn't love small town America or small town world. He does. He loves small town America. And I know personally some churches in small town America today that are awesome churches. Guys that are incredible preachers and teachers, people who are leading worship with just as much passion, just as much enthusiasm, just as much purpose and faith as our guys are leading here today, although maybe they've never written a song that anybody knows or maybe people have never heard of them. God loves everybody that's leaning with the Spirit to build up the church of Jesus wherever they are in the world. But the reality of it is the world is becoming urban day by day by day. I've been reading this summer a little small book called Global Cities, A Short History. And in it, Greg Clark says that when the process of urbanization and relocation of population reaches its peak, more than 80% of the people on planet Earth are going to live in an urban context. Now, we would go, okay, I get it. I live in an urban context, and most of you here today live in an urban context. But this is the way society is going, which is good news for the gospel, because the gospel travels out of cities into every stream of culture and into every town in every village on planet Earth. And so when we hear about these towns, Jerusalem, first city of the church of Jesus, Antioch, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, Rome, these were key cities. That's why I love that we're called Passion City Church. So right now, we got a location going in Cumberland, but it's not called Passion Cumberland. It's called Passion City Church Cumberland. Now, we're going to have another one after that. You're like, where's it going to be? Wherever you want it to be. We're taking a survey. Drop something in the box in the oval. Maybe it'll be your neighborhood next. But wherever it is, it's going to say Passion City Church X. Y or Z. So it's going to remind us that, yes, we're in the area called Cumberland. Right now we're in the area called Limburg, but our vision is for the city of Atlanta, Georgia. We're never going to have a different vision than seeing six and a half million people. Thank you for the nine people who clapped for that. We have a vision to see all the people in the metropolitan area of Atlanta come alive to the gospel story. And we have a vision to see that happen in Washington, D.C. as well, a strategic city in the world. And we have plans for other cities after that that we'll talk about on other days. 
depending on how above and beyond Sunday goes this year and next year and the year after that. We got plans. We just need resources, people. And when God releases the resources, we already have all the vision that we can handle for a long while. But it's a city strategy. The second thing that's really part of the boilerplate of all this is that even though it's a city strategy, citizens are the gospel engine. So how does the city strategy work? By having some celebrity person who shows up in that city and tells everybody about Jesus? No. The gospel church worked then and it works now, not because of the gifts and talents of a few, but the sacrifices of many. The citizens of heaven, which are you and me, we are the engine by which the church expands into the influential cities and towns of the world and spreads on the avenues of culture into the hearts and lives of every single person alive right now, and that's the plan. This isn't even the message tonight, but come on, that's the plan. So if you're not on board with that plan, you are not on board with God. How do you know God's will? Number one, get your life on board with the plan that God wants to use you and me and us collectively to spread the story of Jesus to every single person alive on planet Earth right now. That's the will of God. I don't know, should we buy this house or should we buy this house? We don't know. Is it the condo or is it the split, you know, split level? Is it the ranch by the lake or is it the lovely cottage in the field? We don't know. We can't decide. Lord, give us wisdom. Show us what is your will for our lives. My will for your life is that you will use your life to spread the story of Jesus, either in the condo or in the valley or in the, you know, the split level or the ranch, one style, one floor. I don't care. Just get on board with the plan and we're 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 laboring God with all these prayers oh Lord I don't know should I get the Lexus or should I get something made in America and he's just like uh, I don't know people are dying in your neighborhood because they don't know that there's a grace and a, and, and a kindness for them so do you want them to know about oh they got a new Lexus look Oh, they got the Chevrolet. I like that. Made in America. Or do you want to know about me? I don't care what kind of car you buy, frankly. Let's start telling people about Jesus. The bottom line is the citizens are the gospel engine. The church isn't built on celebrities. It's built on citizens. Now, can I say something about that real fast, though? Just parenthetically, and then we'll get to the first person. In the in the kingdom of God, there's visibility and viability. Now, the reason I say this is because you hear people say a lot of the time, nobody sees me, nobody knows what I do. I have a role that is, is a less visible role. And there are visible roles in the kingdom of God. There always have been, and I guess there always will be, and there are less visible roles in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is visible because all of us play our role in the kingdom of God. And frankly, whether you have a visible one or a less visible one, you don't really care because you know the, the whole process is viable because everybody plays their role in the story of God. If you had to have a heart valve replacement surgery, you would want a heart expert to tell you that. 
You would not want to meet a kid that said, yeah, I was, was going to be a, a, you know, a doctor, but I decided I was going to sell insurance instead, but I, I did you know, study medicine for about six months. You don't want that person telling you you need a valve replacement surgery. You want somebody with a lot of credentials at the end of their name. And they've probably got their face on a website somewhere. They may be one of the leading uh, surgeons in America. That's what you would hope for. And they're visible. But as soon as they made the decision, you need to have heart valve replacement surgery. I, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, have decided as the expert specialist that that's what needs to happen in your life. As soon as they said that and the words came out of their mouth, a hundred people would be marshaled into the process of a successful surgery for you instantaneously. I mean, think about it. Anybody had major surgery recently? There was the check-in persons. You remember how amazing they were. Uh, there were the schedulers, the insurance people, the diagnostic people, the imaging specialists, the nurses, the nurse practitioners, the food service people, the janitorial people, the linen services, pharmacists, lab technicians, anesthesiologists, surgery prep team, security, the parking people out in the deck, making sure your family got in and out, the CICU team, the chaplain, let's hope that maybe they got involved, the lovely people at the gift shop were on board, the building maintenance people, waste service his rehabilitation specialist. There was an army of people that made your successful valve replacement surgery possible. But what are you going to do? You're going to say, man, thank the Lord. I'm feeling great. Dr. So-and-so fixed my heart valve. You're not going to say, you won't believe this. A very nice man named Larry came in every day and mopped my room. And I'm standing here today as testament <laughs> to how good a job he did. See, we live in a culture that wants to push somebody up to number one and give them the credit. But the viability of any successful enterprise is the participation of a multitude of people specializing in a varied number of things that no one else can do but them. And so what we want to become, and I just, this is sort of like a pastoral moment, we want to become a church that is fine with people who have visibility in our church, but understands the viability of our church is everybody sacrificing and running in their lane to make it all work. And the visibility part isn't a new thing. Somebody said, well, it's just this new era we live in with social media and some people, you know, become celebrities in church world. It's not really like that. These guys in Acts face the very same thing because some people just have visible roles in the kingdom of God. We, we talked last week about Barnabas and Saul slash Paul, how they went out. When they were in Lystra, Paul healed a man, all kind of pandemonium broke out. Uh, there was a temple of Zeus nearby and a lot of the Greek uh, God worshipers, little g God worshipers, thought that Barnabas and Paul were gods. And they came from uh, the temple nearby, brought gifts for them, worshiped them, and revered them. They said, the gods have come down in human form. Now, that's the equivalent of somebody Instagramming about a ministry or a conference that happened and saying so-and-so spoke or so-and-so sang or one of our guys wrote a song and has traveled around the world or somebody was on an album or a recording or a video and somebody going, that really 
touch my life. Same thing just on steroids with these guys. The gods have come down in human form. So way back in the beginning, some of the gifts led toward visible roles in the church. But the beautiful thing about it was Barnabas and Paul were not hung up on the visibility. They really understood the viability. They came running out and tore their clothes and said to these people, hey, listen, we're just ordinary people just like you. We're talking about a God who is more than ordinary. It's his message. It's his power. It's his kingdom that has come to bear in this moment. So I just want to say pastorally, if somebody in our house gets visibility, I saw someone in our house on CNBC this week. I was like, check that out. I didn't go, well, who does he think he is? Being on TV, I guess he's going to come back on Sunday and be all like, I was on TV this week. I'm like, way to go. Somebody in our house got some visibility. I love it. When people in our house get visibility, we don't want to knock them down because they got visibility. We want to cheer for them because somebody in our team got visibility. The problem isn't the visibility. The problem's when you lose humility. That's the problem. And so as long as somebody's visible, not the problem. Well, so-and-so's visible, so are they humble? If they're humble, fine if they're visible. If they're not humble and they get proud, guess what? That visibility is going to kill them. And it ultimately is going to reflect poorly on the Savior whose name they carry. And so I want you to be visible. And I'm not nervous about anybody on our team being visible. My job as the pastor is to make sure we all stay on our knees and we all stay humble. So that if somebody misspeaks and says, oh my goodness, you saved my life, we go, oh, well, you know, God is the one doing all the saving around here. But we do that even in a kind way and we don't do all that pointing up into heaven business and it's not me, it's the Lord. It's like, yeah, we knew that already. We already know it's God. And so we can gently help each other and steer each other in this beautiful thing, but we don't get pride if we get visibility. Hello? And that's not just for people on this stage. That's for you on your stage and your company and your business and your organization at your school. That's for you too. You don't, don't, don't run away from visibility. Just make sure you walk with Jesus in a way that the byproduct stays humility in your heart because God wants to elevate us. He said, if you'll humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you in the right time. So in every way, God wants to lift people up and give them influence, but it happens in proportion to the humility that's in our hearts. So don't run away from visibility, but also don't despise the roles where it's not as visible because the goal here is viability, not visibility. The goal is that our house will beat with a healthy heart and that we will touch people's lives all over the city and the world. And that doesn't happen because of a few people's gifts and talents. It happens by every single person's sacrifice all in the same spirit. We got a lead story here. Jesus is alive, but that same Jesus is writing people like you and me into that story every single day. The person I want to introduce you to today is found in Acts chapter 9, and maybe you've already guessed who is it going to be today. I know you've been talking about this around the the meal table with your family and some of you have a bracket at home like who's going to be the next uh, you know person of the fine print and I know you got bets going and there's all kind of tension in the room right now like who's it going to be who's it going to be because you've been thinking about these messages like all week long coming in so here's the big revelation are you ready Acts chapter 9 verse 36 in Joppa that's a town or city 
An important town and city, by the way, because the gospel strategy seems to be cities. In Joppa, there was a disciple named, here we go, get ready, drum roll. Is everybody ready to meet her? Her? It's a her. Who knew there could be a her in this story? You would think it was going to be a him, but it was a her. I've been asking around. Who do you think it's going to be? 90% responses, guys. Nope, not today. Tabitha, you can call her Tabby, which when translated is Dorcas, or you can call her Dorcas. Aramaic, Jewish, Tabitha. Greek name, Dorcas. A beautiful name, by the way. Name means gazelle. Not Giselle, gazelle. The animal. In this culture, sign of beauty. So we think Dorcas was a fast and beautiful woman. And here's the definition. She's only mentioned twice, two times, two mentions, a handful of verses. And here's what it says about her. Who was always, can you say always? Always. Doing good and helping the poor. And God said, write her in to the unchanging word of God. When the flower fades, the grass withers, when everything you think is dependable is gone in a heartbeat, I'm telling you one more time, this word of God is going to stand forever. And in it is gonna be the statement that says, There was a disciple in Joppa named Tabitha. Also, you might have known her as Dorcas. And you know why I wrote her in the story, guys? Because she was always doing good and helping the poor. Story turns pretty quickly in the next verse. About that time, she became sick and died. Her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Now, Lydda, it's another little town, was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, now we've got Saul just being converted in the chapter before. He's now preaching the gospel. But we've got Peter, who from the beginning has been preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's also been doing signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit of God. And he's in a nearby town. And so the people loved Tabitha. They loved Dorcas. And they said, we know Peter's not far away. Go get Peter and see if he'll come in and pray. And so it says, when they realized that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men, some more fine print right there. We don't know their names, but thank goodness for them. They volunteered for the job. We'll go to Lydda and we'll see if Peter will come back to Joppa and pray for our circumstance. They sent two men to Peter, and they urged him, please come at once. So Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows, more people of the fine print that we don't know their names, stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. So now we know the full story, and we think we get it all together in this little snapshot. When Dorcas died... These widows took care of her, they washed her body, and they put her in an upper room. There's no mention of a family, there's no mention that she had her own people around her. So we think from the context of the story, most likely Dorcas was herself a widow. And as a widow, being touched by the grace of God, 
She now was caring for widows. And how does she care for the widows? She was a really good seamstress. And she didn't just show off by being a good seamstress and making a cool line of clothing and popping up an online store and telling everybody how amazing it is. She said, I want to use this ability to touch the last and least of these on this planet Earth. And so they showed Peter, when he arrived, all of the robes and all the other clothing that Dorcas had made for them. So they're distraught because the person who saw them, valued them, cared for them, and literally covered them is now dead. And they're imploring him. You see these clothes? You see everything she's made? We're talking about a champion here. We're talking about a hero here. We're talking about a legend here. We need you to implore to God and to ask him to do a miracle because this woman is changing people's lives. Don't you want that to be the story when you die? Don't you want people to be sad when you died, not just because you died, but because you were doing something so significant when you died that they don't know where and how that's going to be replaced when you are gone? And so Peter, he sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and he prayed. And then turning toward the dead woman, not the asleep woman, the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. I was just thinking there might have been one amen right there, a a wow, or a whoa, or that freaks me out, or really, or whoa, lady was dead, but no, just chill. It's good. Somebody was dead, they're alive, it's fine. Happened so much that, you know, it's whatever. So then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them, and this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Now, Peter, you want some more fine print? I doubt anybody's got this verse highlighted. (laughs) If you do, could you just raise your hand, because I'd love to know. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Anybody got a big circle around that one? Big star? February 3rd, changed my life. (laughs) It's the fine print. A tanner named Simon in the fine print. Why is he in the fine print? Because, I'll tell you in one second. I wasn't going to tell you right now, but I think I'll wait. So what what does it say about Tabitha? It says a few things. Number one, she's the first Greek female mentioned in the New Testament story of the expansion of the church of Jesus. Why is that important that I say that? Because the church started among the Jews, and for a good period of time, the Jews were of the mind that this gospel story of Jesus was only for the Jews. It was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of us who come in their lineage, and we're the chosen ones of God, we're the people of God, and now Jesus has come for the people of God, not for all the heathen people out there, the Gentile people out there who are not in our family of Abraham. And God obviously didn't send Jesus to this earth for a few people. He sent Jesus to this earth for all the people on planet earth. And I think Tabitha is a beautiful picture of that coming into the story in Acts, first female Greek, non-Jewish person in the story. Obviously a person of faith, but not a Jewish person. What does that tell us? It tells us, A, that this isn't an insider event. So church is not an insider event. Can I say that again? Church is not an insider event. Church is not something that Christians huddle into. 
Church is a moving mission of the gospel. The second thing it tells me is it's not an old boys club either. God's putting women in this story and we're all citizens of heaven and as citizens of heaven we all all have equal access to God, equal access to the gifts, equal access to the spirit and we all have opportunities to be used by God in powerful ways in his story. The second thing we see about Tabitha is she was a disciple. That's what it calls her. Not a woman, not somebody who liked Jesus, not a Christian is what we would call somebody today, or they go to Passion City Church. I don't know how they describe somebody today if they said they came to Atlanta and there was this person who went to Passion City. No, very specifically in Joppa, there is a disciple named Dorcas. Meaning the way you get written into the fine print is when you stop taking on the name or the label of Christian and you actually become a follower of Jesus. That's how you get written in to the fine print of the story. The third thing that we see about her is that she was a caregiver for those on the margins of life. We mentioned this already, but to be a widow in this culture was to be put at risk in every way. There's no covering, there are basically no rights. You could be taken advantage of left, right, anytime, in any way. But the gospel story is no one's on the margins of life. Everybody gets included in the love and grace of God. And how's that gonna happen? Just mysteriously, no. It's gonna happen by people who've been touched by the gospel. And check this out, specifically people who maybe themselves were on the margins of life but now have been brought into the household of faith, into the kingdom of God, into the promise of God, into the hope of the gospel. And when they did that, they didn't forget the people that they knew on the margins of life. They carried all that goodness and grace back to the people on the margins of life because who better to step into the people's lives in the margin than somebody who was in the margin but who's now in the major. And so Dorcas, being a widow, knew what it was like to be a widow, but being touched by the power and grace of God, she said, I'm gonna go back and find every widow in Joppa And I'm going to make sure that they know somebody cares about them and somebody loves them and somebody's going to provide for them. She might have had means, and apparently she did in some way because she could not only provide for herself, but she could provide for other people. And she chose to use her gift not just to advance herself, but to touch the people that Jesus cared about the most. And she went to the marginalized, lowest rung of the ladder in the city. And she said, I want you to know God loves you. And the best way you're going to know God loves you as a widow in this city, a woman, is to have something nice to wear that when you walk through the streets of the city, people won't say, must be a widow. Look at the way she's dressed. When you walk through the city, they'll go, don't know. Looks as good as everybody else does. And that's exactly why we brought backpacks today. So that when a fourth grader goes to school at Garden Hills or any other of the schools in the Atlanta public school system around here, maybe their mom and dad don't have 40 bucks for each of the three kids or four kids in their family. Maybe it's kind of a hand-me-down system. We're going to scrape together whatever pens and pencils we got in the drawer and you'll just have to make do. But no, that fourth grader is walking through the door in a few weeks in that school and they're walking through the door and it's like, you don't know whether my parents have a little or my parents have a lot because I look like just like everybody else coming through the door this year. I got a backpack just like everybody else has got. I got stuff inside of here that's going to help me become everything God wants me to be. And listen, you cannot put a price tag on that. 
Yeah, there's glue sticks and scissors and erasers and composition books in here, and it's just all ordinary stuff. But when you see the face of a boy or a girl walking through the door saying, look at me, I have got on a spanking backpack right here that is jammed out with everything I need, and it's all brand spanking new, everything that's in here, they have a mentality that says, I can do this. And it doesn't guarantee their success, but I'm telling you, it helps them on the way. When I turned the corner on Garson this morning, around sometime before 9 o'clock, coming to the 9.30 gathering, there were three adults coming down the other side of Garson, walking to the building. All three adults had kids' backpacks on their shoulders. And I said, I love this church. I love this house that we're a part of. There are adults coming down the sidewalk, and in their mind is, I want to make sure we care for the people on the margin. And you're like, well, why didn't their parents get a better job? Or why doesn't their dad do this, that, or the other? Or maybe if their parents budgeted their money better, they'd have a better backpack. I mean, how much does it take to get a backpack? And all that cynicism can come in. I love the backpacks because it's not any kid's fault at elementary school that they don't have a brand new backpack. And so all the cynicism just goes away. And the joy is dignity. Dignity. And Dorcas said, I'm going to give dignity to every widow in this town. And when she died, they wept. But when she came back to life, they celebrated and they rejoiced. They probably fell down at Peter's feet. It happened a few pages later and did the visibility thing and said, oh, my goodness, you, you, are, the, you are the man. And just as it happened a few chapters later at Simon the Tanner's house, actually, on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, Peter got called by God, if you will, to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the world. And Cornelius, as you know, in Caesarea was having his own calling from God. He sent men to Joppa to get Peter. They came and found him at Simon the Tanner's house. And with him were all these believers from Joppa. It was the fine print people in the story that were making possible the work of the kingdom of God. The last thing I want you to see about Tabitha, and we'll wrap up with this, is that she was a cause for salvation all over the city. You're like, no kidding, man. You come back from the dead, people are going to pay attention. I love this, verse 42. This became known all over Joppa. And many people believed in the Lord. I love that many people believed. I would, I would really appreciate it if it said, and every single solitary person believed in God. That must mean there was somebody that was like, what happened? Oh, Tabitha? Yeah, she died. I heard she got sick and passed away. Yeah, she did, but she's alive. I know, it was the strangest thing. I was in the market the other night. I was like, that's Tabitha. Dead Tabitha was in the market. I was like, whoa, what happened to you? She said, man came of God and prayed in the name of Jesus, and I was healed and raised up from the dead. And I was like. Did you put your faith in Jesus? No. It's like, who is that guy? No, I'm waiting for a sign from God, something a little more substantial, something a little more, you know, concrete. And can, I haven't said this all day, but I really believe God wants you to hear it right now. Isn't that somebody sitting in this room right now? What is this, you're like, 
40th time you've been in a, in a meeting like this and God has touched your heart and you feel something going on inside and you know what you're doing is not working and you have no real objections to Jesus, but yet you're like, ah. And now there's a guy up here just basically speaking it right back into your story. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of weird. And you want to lean over to your boyfriend and say, what did you do? Did you tell this guy about our conversation this morning? No, they didn't tell me. God is extending grace to you again, like he's done dozens of times already. And what, do you need to see somebody else raised from the dead? Do you need to have another sign? You, what, what? The God of heaven is right here right now. But you know, for the most of us, it's interesting. I think we hear the story of Dorcas and we say, well, you know, Louis, if I was raised from the dead, like if I died of something and all of a sudden the next thing I knew Peter was sitting there and I'd be like, whoa, I would tell the whole world about that too. I mean, there'd be a move of God in my neighborhood. My family would, I, everybody would hear about that. If I was dead and then by the power of God, I came to life, oh, I would tell everybody about that. Oh, you'd see the ripples of that in my life. I mean, if I had her story, like there was a time in my life that I was dead, but God intervened by the power of Jesus. In some way, I became alive again. And God, oh, everybody would hear about that. Trust me. If I had her story, oh, I'd be starting a salvation party. Are you with me? Who has that story? Who has that story in this room right now? Who has that story? Who has that story? Don't most all of us in the room have that story? I was dead. But Jesus brought me spiritually from death to eternal life. And I am a living, walking witness that Jesus makes dead things live again. You're like, man, if I got raised from the dead, Louis, like the doctor came in and said, we couldn't do any more. And then like next day I'm walking around. Oh, I'd call my uncle. I'd call my family. I'd tell my neighbors. I... Tabitha started a salvation story all over the city because she'd experienced the greatest thing of all, which was the power of God to bring the dead to life. And the prodigals, that's what the father said. He said, this is my son. Not he was a rebel. Not he was an idiot. He was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. See, every one of us has got cause to be written in as people of the fine print. Because we've got a story to share with the world, an irrefutable story of grace to share with the world. So maybe you're not a seamstress, but if you are, hello. Meet Tabitha. <laughs> but what can you do well? And how can you use what you can do well to look for the last and least of these on planet Earth, to find the people in the margins and to bring them into the major? How can you cover and bring dignity to people by simply doing the thing 
that you do well. So you may be single, you may be a widow yourself, man or woman. Widowed by death, widowed by divorce, widowed by abandonment. Maybe there was never a husband or wife in the story from the beginning. And you've been alone and isolated, and you feel on the margin. You feel behind the eight ball. You're like, I'll never be significant in the story of God. Look at all these other people. They have families, and they have this, and they've got such an advantage. Listen to me. You have all you need right now, wherever you are. If you will just choose to say, God, write me in. I receive your grace. I'm filled with your power. I want to step into your story. I want to go from attending to actually being a part of the story of God. I want to put my shoulder under the vision. And I'm not going to live one more day saying, well, I would, but I can't because X, Y, and Z. I'm going to say this. Are you ready for this? Because of X, Y, and Z, I am the very best person to step in to the story of God and the power of God to be used by God. Because what a crazy story. Now, if this story had been, there's this family, and they were loaded. Their family's family was loaded. They were all so loaded, they didn't know what to do with all of how much loaded they were. And one of the ladies thought, you know, when she wasn't at the this and the that and the other, she got some of the loaded and gave it to some of the widows. We'd be like, duh. No kidding. And we all should have that attitude, no matter where we are on the loaded scale. But when a widow steps in, touched by the gospel and makes a way for every widow in the town. This is a power story. This is a supernatural Jesus story. This is a kingdom turns the world upside down story. This is a person who should be at the bottom, but yet God put them all the way at the top and wrote them in the story story. This is a people of the fine print story where we celebrate the lesser known yet extraordinary people who happily carried the cause of Christ and joyfully, faithfully build his church. There's someone on our team, a door holder at Passion City Church named Ashley. Ashley's primary role is to serve at five o'clock in Bloom. And she does that faithfully every single week. So what is five o'clock at Bloom? That means for the families that come to our five o'clock gathering that have little ones, um, they drop them off in Bloom and there are people who come to Bloom and say, let me hold the baby. Let me change the diaper. Let me wipe the snot off their face. Let me make sure pandemonium doesn't break out in this little room of nine two-year-olds. Let me hang out in here while Mr. Visibility over there preaches too long. I will hold the babies the whole time. I will be in here to the very, very end. Let me come and provide a place where kids' hearts can be planted. That's why we called it bloom. And they can spring up in the soil of the grace and the goodness of God and grow up into the people that God wants them to be. We don't have babysitters in bloom, people. We've got people in bloom who are praying over your children, who are believing for your children, who see the vision and the purpose of God in your children. And they come into this house every day. I'm telling you what, they are not visible in this house unless you've got a kid in bloom. And if you've got a kid in bloom, you already know, bring them Christmas presents, bring them gifts every other week. You already know 
who they are. You thank God for them and you love them. And a lot of people in this house love Ashley. She serves our house. You can uh, you find her over there today at 9.30. She was serving our house. And not even her normal place to serve, but she's here a lot of times at 9.30. You know, there she is on a Grove night. Um, I don't know what other shots we have. There she is with Edie, who actually gives a lot of leadership to our Bloom team. And then here she is doing what she does. Think about that. Five o'clock, that's her place. But guess where she was at 9.30 today? She's in bloom right now. She didn't know we were going to talk about her today. She said, oh, I'm going to get there early today so because I'm going to become visible today and it'd be good if I was there at 9.30. They, she didn't know. She just comes giving most of the margin of her free time to serve this house. And for over four years, she's cared for your children week in and week out in bloom. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the beautiful nature of the story of God? And so to all the Ashleys in our house today, you might not be visible, but you are our viability. You are visible to somebody, but you are the viability of everybody in this house. And I just want to invite all of you today, there's a place for you in the story of God. But it will never happen because of guilt or a recruitment campaign or me leaning and saying, come on, you got to step out of the attender category and get in the join us category. No, it really won't work good that way. In fact, I don't want anyone to go to welcome to church container or to sign up to be a door holder because you feel some sense of, eh, I probably should do that. Our prayer is that the gospel will explode in every heart in this house. And when it does, I already know what's going to happen. People are going to sign up to be door holders, and they're going to come here saying, I'm not here just to take from Passion City. I'm here to become Passion City, and I want to be written into the fine print of the great story of God. He's the headline, and I don't need it. As long as he gets it, I'll be happy. But write me into the story in my lane of culture, in my lane in the city, as a seamstress, as a homemaker, as a financier, wherever God puts you, I'm going to be the first one in my lane or the another one in my lane to make sure people know that Jesus is alive.